Hey listeners, this is Things of Interest, and you've made it to part three of our conversation on ethical consumption. In part two, we talked about science. Is it a public good? How do we fund it? How do we incentivize good science and avoid fraud? This time, we're getting back on the economics train to talk about capitalism, libertarianism, and the murky world of morality and ethics. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, here's part three. This is going to be a nonsensical segue, because we have talking points and we want to get back to them. (laughs) Alright, what's up? Uh, Let's see. What's this thing about effective altruism? Uh, Well, click on the link to the Wikipedia page, Serena. What? You mean I have to do things? (laughs) (laughs) I have to, like, do research for this podcast? I haven't Uh... done research in years. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You got a real job. Essentially, it's, like, this idea that, like, there is a most effective way to benefit other people and that we should be, like, moving towards that. Hmm. And it sort of, like, takes science and applies it to giving to charity. Yeah, and it sort of it goes into the context of things like career selection and donation and how to prioritize different courses. And um, Peter Singer's written a lot about it, as has a few other people that don't work for the same university I'm enrolled in, so let's not even mention them. Yeah, I think it's a particularly interesting idea because rather than saying, like, all charities are meaningful, it goes, mm-hmm. okay, which charity can I give to? It will, like, maximize the use of my dollars. It's sort of this idea, like, there's a regular debate topic that comes up in, you know, debating circles that is, like, essentially the question of whether you should give, like, your $10 to a charity in your country or a charity, like, in another country, like, in Southeast Asia or in Africa. And often the arguments for the Southeast Asia or Africa are essentially, like, your dollar means a lot more to them because... Australia and New Zealand have pretty strong dollars compared to the um, money that's used in other countries, particularly those that don't have as strong economies. And then the question of like whether you should give it to a charity at home or like a homeless person on the street is like a charity at home is like necessarily going to use that money in a quote unquote good way, whereas the homeless person on the street, and this is a horrible thing, but it like is talked about a lot essentially you don't know if they're going to use that money to buy wine oh there are a lot of reasons for homelessness and it's a lot more complicated than that but that is typically the argument that comes up i think effective altruism because it leaves space for you to determine like what your most important charities are it's a lot more flexible than a sort of like hard line like i need to put my money where it will do the most good while it doesn't at any point explicitly say, like, you should give your charity to people not in your immediate community if your immediate community is, like, relatively wealthy. Well, firstly, poverty is relative. Secondly, like, you can make that choice. You can say, I prioritise my immediate community over, like, poverty in the developing world or animals in factory farms or global warming. And if you prioritize that, then you then apply effective altruism to see where your money can best be spent in order to most affect your immediate community, which I think is interesting. And I like anything that applies maths to the real world. So I'm here for it. It is. I like the idea of, I mean, in general, I like the idea of focusing on impact. So not just willy-nilly donating your time or money to anything that is vaguely quote-unquote good but seeing how you can maximise the benefit 
I like that idea. What would be a really interesting perspective on this idea is instead of coming at it from like an individualistic perspective of I have a choice, I have many choices, I choose what I prioritize, I also choose how I determine what maximizing efficiency means because, you know, people will have different definitions and different conclusions to how best to maximize your resources, essentially, for the good of the community. I, I think it'd be interesting to come from, from like a more, I don't know, like a more macro level and to say there's a system of people and they have limited resources, varying amounts of limited resources. These people want to do, like, everyone has some kind of innate internal want to do good for the community for themselves and the community around them. There are a system of incentives that this uh, all of these individuals live in. So how do we move the incentives? How do we move those variables so that we actually incentivize actions that maximize impact of good things? I wonder like I wonder what that would look like. I wonder how we can change systems, how we can change regulations, how we can change how we do tax even to basically not only incentivize people doing good for the community but incentivize people doing good that is impactful that is effective that is efficient yeah I'm not like so convinced by the idea of people be like maximizing the efficiency of the good they do like I think part of that is probably because I spent the last two and a half years living in a city with the same population as New Zealand and I'm sure that if all four and a half million people in Melbourne like gave 1% of their income towards charity, it wouldn't matter if it was particularly efficient. That'd be like a whole bunch of money. So I'm not so convinced by the necessity of that on a broad scale, but I do believe that at the current standpoint we have, we're like, it's not, essentially like, it's not really like a normal thing to give to charity. I think it is in very particular circles. And I think a lot of those circles I move in, but beyond that, like it's not really normal to like give a chunk of your income to charity that we do have to maximize efficiency there in the instance mm. that we change structures in society to sort of normalize that. It's like, well, efficiency is like maybe like over 50% efficiency would be nice. Like, you know, let's like set some standards <laughs> yeah. and um, like, let's not don't spend your money on administration fees. That would be cool. But <laughs> otherwise, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I do like a little bit of charity stuff. So uh, I do a 35 kilometer walk. I've done it for the past two years for um, the group that funds my PhD. So the Australian Mitochondrial Disease Foundation. And I mean, I do that because like I have that connection with them. Like, but I think people who don't have a connection, particularly with like more niche char charities like the AMDF, they wouldn't give money to that. They wouldn't. And they almost like it wouldn't be efficient under the standards that are put out by things like effective altruism under like any kind of study, like because the AMDF funds scientific research, you're not saving lives. You're not decreasing like um, disability adjusted life years. Like there is no cure for mitochondrial disorder. So like we can't avoid that easily. Like, and so charities that are highly cost effective are always going to miss out on people that are, have incurable disorders or ha that have very like rare disorders or very rare issues. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm talking about disorders because, like, my area of expertise is health. But very rare issues, like, on the broad sense. Like, you can look at the idea that water security in Africa would probably be, like, much more cost-effective um, if you look at somewhere that has been having a drought for a really long time than if you tried to affect water security in Flint, Michigan. 
But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be working on water security there. Like <laughs> this idea that there is an optimal way to spend your money is always going to necessarily like miss out some people. And so like, while I think it's a good concept, I don't think it's a universal like model. I agree. I think the, the problem really is the fact that like we can talk about these models theoretically and say we can optimize for X, but then we leave out the fact that we're going to disagree on what X is. We're going to disagree on what is what is optimal, what is impactful. And we're going to disagree on what is actually good and what is the most good. And that's where the whole optimization system crashes and burns because while we can agree that the method and the process is nice, if we can't agree on the intended outcome, if we can't agree on what our priorities are, then we're going to go nowhere. The concept of the most good and like the examples given surrounding things like effective altruism include like the suffering of animals in factory farms. And it's like, I think that's really important. I think the fact that we have animals in factory farms is super gross and disgusting and that we shouldn't do it. I mean, the way to alleviate that is like government regulation, not necessarily giving to charity, but you do you, I guess. But in the instance of like, if you're giving money to one charity, you're not giving it to another in most circumstances, I would prioritize humans over animals. That sounds really shitty, but it's like, there are animals in factory farms and they're suffering and that sucks. The way to change that is to like, talk to your government and tell them to like, change the laws surrounding that and say, I understand that like, the big businesses, the big, big chicken or whatever it is, like they won't be super happy with you, but like, there's a degree of suffering that you cannot avoid in this. And it's like, it's going to increase the diseases in our chicken and increase like a lot of issues surrounding that and the use of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance, big issues, blah, blah, blah. Okay, done. But big chicken to not, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) To not give money to humans who need it because you've prioritized chickens and factory farms is more important Seems kind of fucked up to me. Yeah. Giving money to charities that support um, wildlife and ecology and global warming, those have flow-on effects that benefit humans. And I think, like, looking at the long-term survival of the human race, those charities are, like, I don't want to say more legitimate, but, like, I'm less angry about you giving to the World Wildlife Fund over something like Oxfam than I am about someone who says, no, chickens and factory farms are really important. But I don't know what we're going to do about, like, all of Africa. That kind of fucks me off. <laughs> the uh, the classic story of vegans going vegan because, you know, they care about animals, which is great. Um, Very but important. not caring about the workers who who get paid nothing to to cultivate their quinoa. A lot of vegans are very conscious about, like, the world beyond just, like, not eating animal products. And they will eat things like organic sugar and they will make sure things are fair trade. But there are some, there are some that do not. And those are the vegans that I'm just like so done with. Where they're like, oh yeah, like I really like want to decrease animal suffering. And it's like, okay, that's really good. Like not eating animal products is like a good choice with regards to like global warming as well as like animal suffering. Totally legit. But if you're eating and if you have the money to not make this choice, because I think like being aware of people's funds is really important in this context. But if you're eating like cheap ass sugar that was like, harvested by people in borderline slavery conditions if you're like eating the fancy quinoa that is like 
dramatically altered the economy of some place in South America to, to, to the extent where they're having like artificially induced famines because everyone who's farming quinoa is exporting it because they can get more for it from hipsters and vegans in the US, Australia, New Zealand, all of that, than they can from selling it to people within their community. If you're not aware of that concept, context of your decisions, but you care like so much about the fact that cows aren't sad, like I just have no time for your veganism and I think it's pretty disingenuous. From my experience of talking to, to vegans who have thought this way, it is like an age thing. Like, I've definitely talked to my, my sister's vegan and her friends are all vegan. And it's just something that they really haven't considered. So I do think like the more we, we raise it, and if they, if they do have time to consider it. I'd be nice to like 16 year olds that were thinking like this. But if you're like 23, then I'm just like, nah. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> You're an adult. <laughs> you could have Googled this. What are you doing? Yeah, it is something that I do like to advocate to my friends who are mostly by far meat eaters. Um, it's just to like, don't worry about cutting meat out of your life. Don't worry about cutting animal products out of your life. But do try to cut it down. Because if if everyone just eats meat twice a week instead of seven days a week that is an incredible change and that does enough to undo a lot of the the shitty things that we do like if we if we ate chicken once in a while instead of for every single meal basically like what we do now like that's that's going to make a difference and not only is that going to make a difference but it's going to be sustainable for people who really like meat which is, you know, me. I love meat. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, because it's sustainable, we can keep that up. And not only is it sustainable, uh, it's cheaper, and it makes a difference. So, to those of you out there listening who fucking love steak, like I do, you don't need meat in every single meal as a protein. There are lots of other proteins out there. Get on chickpeas. Chickpeas are, like, such a good protein. So get on chickpeas. Tofu is delicious fry that up bit of salt bit of soy sauce you're done it's fantastic um spinach it's good the pre-marinated soy sauce uh tofu as well which is like oh yes oh oh god um you know how i got sorry total aside you know how i got some coconut yogurt when i was in um wellington yeah yeah and i like complained bitterly about it I haven't been able to stop thinking it, thinking about it for like a month. So despite the fact the entire time I was like, I don't know how sold I am on this coconut yogurt. Like for about the past month, I've just been like, fuck, that was some good coconut yogurt. <laughs> you can't get like, um, unless you go to like a specialty store, which like I don't have a hu- huge amount of access to. Like, you, Oh, it was like this um, Waiheke Island brand. Homies, homies in Wellington, go and find this like, Fancy ass <laughs> coconut yogurt in a glass jar that like comes with like cocoa added flavors. It is the best thing I've ever put in my body, and it's <laughs> vegan. So go eat it. Gotta get me some of that fix. It's a New Zealand product as well. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Helping yeah. helping our economy. Um, I did also read about you know people talking about ethical consumerism in the uh, in the context of meat and in the context of what you can like literally consume into your body Mm. and someone did raise a really good point around around about what kind of meats you choose to eat as well yeah if you're if you're concerned about like the number of lives you're saving a chicken could feed a family for one dinner but a cow could feed like five families for a month kind of thing so it's the argument is that it is ethically better to 
consume beef than it is to consume chickens, just because they're bigger and you're, you know, you're killing okay. less lives. <laughs> My concern then would be, like, the impact on global warming, right? Because, mm. like, cows release so much methane, and certainly I need to eat red meat every so often, otherwise I get anemic and then I can't move for three days, mm. um, which is just a quirk of how my body works. And so since being in Australia, I eat kangaroo because mm-hmm. kangaroos release very little methane, need to be cold, otherwise like they overpopulate, eat all their food and die, mm-hmm. and are a lean red meat. And it's delicious. Boom. I think another thing that we really need to mention as well is uh, if you're thinking about changing your diet and your eating habits to be more ethical, put your health first. Yeah. Like, never change anything that would that would make your health suffer. And do it slowly. Be good to yourselves. Make it sustainable. Otherwise, like, you're going to be vegan or vegetarian for a week or a month and then give it up. And then, like, what have you really done? Yeah, I can be um, I can be vegan for, like, six months at a time and then I get anemic mm. again. It's like, oh, here we are. I've eaten so <laughs> many green leafy vegetables. I've had so many iron supplements and yet here we are again. Yeah, so be good to yourself. Yeah, yeah. And certainly just, like, work out what your body needs and if you're ever concerned, have a chat to your doctor about it because that's what they're there mm. for. Um, for a complete pivot, what do you think about self-driving cars? Oh, well, that is completely different. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're, we're looping back. We, we're looping we back looping to the back whole... We self-driving cars because I'm getting a little bit hungry and I don't want to keep talking about food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, like, there's, like, cake, like, three meters away from me and I'm trying very hard oh, to mate. eat healthy. So, um, let's, let's go back mate. and talk about self-driving cars. <laughs> okay, robots. Robots aren't edible. It... <sighs> It's interesting because it's one of those new technologies that seems inevitable. So while in the short term it's really difficult and it will mean a lot of loss of jobs, um, especially lower paying jobs, especially to those people who really need those jobs, I don't think it's a good idea for us to to halt the development of self-driving cars in any way. I think what will be really key to the whole automation phenomena in general, to the automation pattern in general and in society, is really good regulation. Yeah. Um, This sounds so boring, but we need regulation. Because if we're, like, self-driving cars are an awesome technology, and they're going to come sooner or later. Uh, Much like how steam engines going to come sooner or later much like how cars in general on the road uh eventually became a thing much like how automated checkouts for something that people who are listening to this might actually be able to remember (laughs) um much like how automated checkouts are suddenly everywhere and things like how robots making cars on a factory line or any like factory line are suddenly ubiquitous it won't do us any good to try and halt the progress yeah to do anything to halt the progress of technology that really is inevitable. So what we really have to think about is, okay, this is a problem because a lot of people, especially the most vulnerable people who really need the jobs that they have now in car manufacturing and also in driving cars and transport in general. Well, driving cars and buses. Yeah. Yeah, and truck drivers. Like, there's this huge Mm. range. And we particularly talk about Uber in probably what will be the last episode now. But you're looking at Uber, you're looking at taxis, you're looking at buses, you're looking at people that transport goods. Mm. And that's going to be a huge alteration to those people who sort of like 
are in those like I think they're often relatively low wage jobs. Yeah. Um, they're kind of shitty jobs, but to not have them would suck. So what our problem is is like how do we either do we reskill these people? Do we put them in different jobs? Do we like how how do we tackle this essentially? And I'm definitely not an expert in this field in the field of labor and economics like (laughs) we say after having recorded two episodes on labor and economics (laughs) (laughs) not an expert disclaimer don't believe anything i'm saying i'm probably lying um (laughs) i think i think you're pretty good on it right like a lot of while we don't have some information surrounding like particular statistics surrounding labor surrounding how um particular ways of getting and keeping labor work I think there are some very basic theories that everyone can understand and that is you either have a job or you do not and if you do not have the skills for a job you generally cannot get it and unfortunately like when your entire field like is destroyed and we're seeing this in Victoria where I live right now um in that a bunch of coal fact like mines and stuff involving coal is being shut and people worked there and now they don't have those jobs and it's like well Obviously, you need to reskill those people. And we're seeing it in Dunedin with the closing of the Cadbury factory, right? Like, those people need to be reskilled. Maybe less so for the Cadbury factory, because, like, I don't particularly know how different a chocolate factory is to another type of factory, but I'm sure those are transferable skills. But with coal, like, there's nothing like coal out there, which is good, mm. but also kind of bad for all of these people who live in rural Victoria that are losing their jobs. And so, similar to what needs to happen with the closing of Hazelwood, is what needs to happen when self-driving cars come through, is there needs to be action from above. And I think big companies that are not Uber will probably make an effort to protect their workers in some way. And that's not necessarily stopping self-driving cars from coming through, but that is giving the people skills to have different jobs. And I think that's going to happen partly because unions exist. And so... Looking at things like public transport, I'm fairly certain there is a public transport workers union. If self-driving buses start occurring, like then they will alter the way that those jobs function or they will train the people who were bus drivers to be tram or train drivers, right? Like those are the changes mm. that will be made. Or they will give them the skills to work in the central hub or like they will help them get to polytech or university or something. And that is because that union exists and that union can say, hey, we understand that this is going to happen. Well, they might try and block it for a few years. Sometimes unions do crazy things. (laughs) We understand that this is going to happen. We want to protect our workers. That is literally the role of a union. And that is how that's going to occur. I think the issue really arises when you look at something like Uber, like something that works on a contract basis, because there is no union. There is no way for those workers to be protected. And like driving when driving isn't a job anymore is not a transferable skill. Yeah. I have a much more cynical view on the power of unions currently. <laughs> oh no. I'm sorry. I love them so much. Continue. <laughs> I no, I, I really I really love the idea of labor unions. I think they're really important. I think the reality of just how unions work in Western countries nowadays, like the the power that they have has really diminished. And I'm not as hopeful that they will have that leverage, um, that they will have the same leverage as they once did. Yeah. Do you believe that partly because there's decreasing buy-in for unions? There is decreasing, yes. 
Um, and that has a lot to do with the fact, like it's it's kind of this like self perpetrating, perpetuating circle. Yeah, self perpetuating circle is that, you know, the the unions they lose some influence, they lose some power, and the new people coming in see that maybe being in a union isn't worth the fees that they pay annually or monthly. And then because there's less people going into the unions, they lose influence and power yet again, and the cycle continues. So I do think in the case of driverless cars and automation in general, there needs, like when I talk about regulation, it's not just it's not just going up to companies and saying, you have to reskill your workers. That's not enough. Like We need some kind of systemic change that actually incentivizes these companies to keep their employees. And I'm not sure what that necessarily is, but the incentives need to be there because if the incentives aren't there for them to keep their employees or for them to make sure that their employees do not uh, lose employment or to make sure that they gain employment after the transition, then companies will try and uh, get around the whole reskilling thing. Like, they, they'll, they'll get out of it somehow. There is possibly absolutely no incentive for companies to try and help workers get jobs after those workers no longer have jobs with a specific company. That is yeah. probably, like, the role of the government, because mm-hmm. arguably the government doesn't want people to be on the unemployment benefit. The way to do yeah. that is to provide free skilling. The reskilling I talk about in the context of like particularly bus drivers and public transport is that in the instance that the company keeps those workers. And I think like if someone has been a very good bus driver, they'd probably also be a very good tram or train driver, like looking at the context of Melbourne where those are very common ways of getting around. I think arguably that would be like something that a company would do for people who have been good bus drivers for them. I don't think that that is... I don't think they give a shit about people after they leave them. And I don't think they have any incentive or need to. Like, I'd argue that's not a company's mm. role at all. Yeah, Their role is to make no, dollars. You'd be completely correct. <laughs> yeah, so maybe maybe the thing that, that might have to happen is that there needs to be some kind of, I don't know, new technology tax. Because otherwise it's the it's the government eating the funds for relocating, reskilling yeah. people. And whereas it's those companies that develop these new technologies that have displaced these people. Yeah. So maybe the it just needs to be like an extra dollar value that the companies that the companies have to pay to invest in this new technology. Quite possibly. I don't know. We're 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 not we're not legislation writers. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about self driving cars is like I'm sure that you've been involved in um, a few ethical discussions about it. Essentially, the question of if a self driving car is in an instant where it's a trolley problem situation where it can either like kill the person in the car or save the person in the car and kill five other people, <laughs> what would it do? And, like, yeah. how should that yeah. be written? And I think um, my favourite thing about how those discussions have occurred is, like, they're often done very esoterically, and it's like, ah, oh, what is the most good? How should this code be written? <laughs> and realistically, from a company perspective, they are never going to make a car that chooses to kill you. No. Like, no one is going to buy a car that has written into the code, oh, if you'd, like, <laughs> save the driver but, like, kill five other people, like don't save the driver, like, turn and, like, firstly, those situations are almost never going to occur. But secondly, like, mm. no one's going to buy a car that kills you. Like, straight up. No. <laughs> and so those ethical discussions, well, like, fascinating. 
for a very long time missed the very basic <laughs> premise that companies like selling things. Yeah. Um, it's, and they're going to sell things. Funny, <laughs> yeah. There was a, a really interesting... So there was a automated vehicle crash, I think this was maybe last year, maybe the year before, in which the the passenger in the car did die. And what happened was that the car... So it was like this weird machine learning code. So it's it's not really like... These driverless cars these days, none of these decisions are hard-coded. Mm. They're all... Uh, you teach the machine and the machine learns, yeah. essentially. And it was this really strange situation in which there was a, a truck passing through and instead of slowing down, the car sped up and veered straight into the truck. And there was a there was a really interesting talk that I watched in which if you look at where like the brains of the car is, like the actual computer, if you because that that stuff was all at the bottom of the car and if you looked at it from the perspective of the car like if you were the car how would i best survive this and the the most optimal way to save yourself as the car was to speed up and to go basically under the truck mm. uh and i don't think so that's just a problem with like the body image of the car right like yeah, the the car was trying to save itself instead of its passenger. Yeah. Um, was the yeah. argument, and like while that is like a really interesting and really kind of scary sci-fi thing to think about, I don't think we have to think about autonomous AI turning on us uh, anytime soon. It it is fascinating that it's cases like that are, are turning up already. We live in the future, essentially. Is what I'm trying to say. Oh yeah. I mean, like, we don't have an iRobot situation in the near future, but, like, just simple things, like, yeah, like, forgetting to make the computer in the car think that it was the car itself, if that makes sense? Yeah. Or, like, make it think that its body extended to the person in the car, like, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I'm not sure if that talk was recorded, because now that I think about it, I think it was at KiwiCon, but maybe he gave that talk somewhere else, so I'll try and dig it up. Okay, sounds good. Something I think particularly about, like, I don't know, I think about profit incentives a lot because, like, basically, like, every company ever generally has a bit of a profit incentive unless they're a non-profit, surprisingly. <laughs> and something we talk about a bit, I teach uh, in the course Genes, Health and Society at the University of Melbourne, um, and something we always have to talk about is, like, talking about pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a case study we talk about where a company has developed a um, anti-heart attack kind of medication for people, um, for African-American people. And there's not, like, great statistics behind it, but when they did, like, a case control study, the difference was so extreme they had to stop it for ethical reasons, and now they're trying to sell it. And it's a combination of two generic drugs that are off patent, and the situation is, like, you know, and I just give it to the students, and I'm like, all right, what do we think? Like, what do we think about the statistics? What do we think about, like, the scientific basis for this treatment? And what do we think about the social aspects? And um, the one thing they always miss is that the drug that, like, literally saves lives, like, it's, it was amazing in the case control study. It looked so good. Because it was on patent, it was something like 20 times the cost. Like, it was, like, $2 per pill where the generic drugs, like, separately were much cheaper. The case control study was against nothing rather than against the generic drugs. And 
basically African Americans, aside from like Native Americans, are probably like some of the poorest people in the US. And so to say, like, we can stop you from dying, but it will cost you like two dollars a day. Mm. Like that's this horrible, horrible thing. And that's something the students always missed until I explained it to them and said, like, because this drug is patented, it's gonna cost a lot. And often they'll be like, Well, you know, like, doesn't this company want to make people better? It's like, yeah. Oh, oh my sweet summer children. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my babies. <laughs> Let me tell you so many stories about how that is not true. <laughs> <laughs> like Arguably, pharmaceutical companies want to make people better. I am willing to believe that. I'm willing to believe that a lot of people that work for pharmaceutical companies want to make people better. They also really want to make dollars. Yeah. It's the same kind of um, situation that you come across over and over again when you see massive companies polluting the environment that they're in, uh, doing just practicing in horrific human rights violations. Uh, and it's it's hard to think about because... It's like every, I know that every single individual person in this company cares about people. Um, But when they are in that kind of company culture, that kind of group culture, and when they have that hierarchy there, suddenly it's like, I know this is wrong, but I need to do my job because I need to, you know, survive. And suddenly everyone has that tune, is that like, I could either stand up or lose my job. I could either stand up or lose my job. And what the system caters for, like the lowest energy state, the default level of the system, is just to have complacent people who take part in horrific decisions. Good people taking part in horrific decisions. And when it comes to when it comes to these kinds of cases, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that profit incentives are not aligned at all with social good or moral values, even vaguely. And I think that's... Oh, and it's also... I think it's hard to remember, particularly if you work for a company that has, like, millions of consumers, Mm. it's hard to remember they're actually people. Yeah. And so to, like, hide something like a drug has a severe risk of causing heart attacks, right? Mm. Like, to hide that is like, well, I mean, it's not really going to affect anyone, really, because, like, you can't conceptualise of them as people and like there's a lot of you know theory surrounding that involving like evolution and shit Mm. but like because you're not thinking about them as human beings with a life and a family and like wants and needs and desires it kind of doesn't matter that something bad might happen to them yeah yes the whole numbers thing and we're going to talk about this in another episode at some point but i've been playing a bunch of the stanley parable again Oh, yeah. Um, and one of the ways it makes you think about video games is like there's a bit where the ending is you repeatedly throw the character you're playing off a very high ledge. Mm. And the narrator treats it as if you're actually killing yourself. And like has that kind of like aghast, horrified thing that like, why are you doing this? Do you like. And you have to do it multiple times, mm. like in order to like get that ending essentially. And I think that really brought it home to me, this idea that, like, people in video games particularly, but also people that you don't ever meet, don't ever see, don't know anything about except, like, maybe some basic demographics, they're not really people to you. You don't think, you're like, oh, you know, they're a statistic. You have, like, 0.1% of people who take this pill have, like, fatal side effects. Well, I mean, that's barely anything, right? Mm. But if 100,000 people are taking your pill, that is 1,000 people that are... Oh, no, sorry, that's not right. That's 100 people that are dying. Yeah. Fuck. 
I like, I did good at math in high school. That was embarrassing. Um, I could barely multiply two numbers together recently, so, you know, don't worry about it. Um, (laughs) But that just doesn't kind of click together in our brains. And I think that's a very, like, I understand how good people do bad things, Mm -hmm. like, from that perspective, because I understand that just, like, you forget that people are people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, we... Our brains are used to being in small communities of maybe 150 people and having empathy for those around us. And suddenly, like, technology has changed so much faster than how... Our brains are changing too. Like, that's... Our brains are evolving, that's for sure. But not fast enough to catch up with just how much communication power and how much... Just the scale that technology has brought to us the scale of influence and yeah it's it's really hard to empathize with a hundred thousand people because we can't even picture a hundred thousand things in our heads like it's impossible it goes up to like a a hundred to two hundred we could like vaguely picture on our heads but anything bigger than that like any numbers that are bigger than that we cannot conceptualize with our brains unless you have a very clear context where you know that that many things were there yeah and yeah so, so like my um my high school was 1800 people so whenever i have to think about that many i like think of a whole school assembly and i'm like oh shit that's a lot <laughs> that's a lot of people <laughs> yeah it's really it's really difficult i do i do think however that we if we somehow could align profit incentives with not being a shitty person like not being a dick not doing morally abhorrent things, even yeah. even slightly more than we have today, and just like working on that slowly, that that would be great. I'm not sure how to do that though. Well, and I mean, like we're talking about like this in the context of people, but this gets even harder when you talk about things like the environment, which oh, is why yeah. like every environmental thing uses pictures of sad polar bears, mm. um, and I think like that quite probably played into like the big Volkswagen um, scandal in that like. Someone at some point would have thought, but how much harm could this do? Mm. And they would have decided, like, not very much. Because, like, what happened in Volkswagen is they had this computer that controlled all of these different components that decreased the output of nitrogen um, oxide, which is, like, a severe pollutant and, like, really shitty, and Europe has acid rain. Like, it's all very bad. That was a set of pollution words. But when they were being tested, the software turned those components up. When the cars were driving, the software turned those components down. And, like, it thought that this was to increase fuel efficiency and change the torque and, like, make everything better for driving. But this meant that, like, these cars were meant to have low emissions, but instead had emissions, like, far, far above legal limits. And I just think, like, yeah, at some point in the process of of developing that particular thing, that thing that is so obviously there to... um, outmaneuver legal requirements someone would have looked at it and thought but how much harm would this do in the context of pollution Mm. coal factories still exist this is probably fine and i think like while on an individual level like there is a limited amount of shit we can do to decrease pollution whereas on a company level there is a lot and it's that differentiation between the two when you are in that kind of position in a company that is incredibly difficult yes so I think the really tricky thing about situations like that, because 
Okay, I mean, I have, I have like a, another example to give, um, which is about this pharmaceutical company that developed a drug, I think for pain relief. I need to look this up. For... Was it um, Nurofen when Nurofen was lying on all its packaging? Which I believe has been held up in court in Australia. It was a it was a pharmaceutical company that developed like some kind of not very interesting drug um, that people use a lot, and it was tested and it was found that it was laced with the HIV virus. Sorry. Holy shit! What? HIV. Yeah, and find me the citation. Oh shit! What? And what they did was that they promptly took it out of market as they should have. But instead of destroying those drugs, they went and sold it in third world countries. What? Bayer. Bayer sells AIDS-infected drug banned in US and Europe. Oh, in Europe and Asia. In Europe? Wow. Mm, wow. This article is from 2006. It talks about the company Bayer sold millions of dollars worth of an injectable blood clotting medicine intended for um, hemophiliacs to Asian, Latin American, and some European countries in the mid-1980s, even though it was, they knew that it was tainted with HIV. Yeah, so I found an article from 2014 that says it was Argentina, Indonesia, Japan, Malaysia, and Singapore. Holy yeah. shit! And it's it's just like a really unbelievable case of a company doing something that is unquestionably just so wrong for profit. And it makes you think. It makes you think, like, what... How did, the hell does this happen? Yeah, I'm very certain that this comes down to the, just the failure to conceptualise people as human beings. Like, human beings as people, whichever way around you want to use that. Yeah, like, I think that and also... Like, I can see looking at an individual, at every single person in this company like they must have so many other influences and other stresses and other incentives and other things that they have to worry about and it is overloading them to the point where the idea of giving uh hiv to hundreds of thousands of people just like didn't compute and you know what was funny was when when you brought up this um this discussion topic for this podcast episode about ethical consumerism under capitalism, I was just thinking, like, when will be the point in this episode in which we start talking shit about capitalism? Because I'm about to talk shit about <laughs> capitalism right now. Because it... It's not so much capitalism. I don't think capitalism as a theory is in itself no, bad. In the same way, I don't think communism as a theory is in itself bad. But both of course really, really shitty things to happen. I just wanted to say that disclaimer. Yeah. Talk shit now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I I completely agree. As a theoretical construct, I think it's and looking at the history of humanity, it's actually done a lot of good for us. Like, as humans in general. It's done some really shitty things, but on the whole, this this whole idea of free market capitalism has provided us with a lot of technology and a lot of great things. So I don't want to downplay that. Like, I don't want to say yeah. that that doesn't matter because it does. However... I also, like, really want a job at some point, so I just don't want to be, like, vocally <laughs> anti-capitalist. <laughs> but continue. <laughs> I mean, however, every everything requires nuance and 
we're getting to the point where like you don't even need to be nuanced to see the failings of capitalism of late stage capitalism and you can see that in this case where this pharmaceutical company sold drugs that they knew were infected with HIV because profits outweighed everything and profits money in general is just so intrinsically linked to survival it's just a fact in the world that we live in that you need money to survive and when people need something to survive then survival instincts kick in right and our higher processing shuts down so it becomes almost impossible for us to do the whole empathy thing to to realize something is morally well to yeah to take on the fact that something that we're doing might be morally abhorrent if we're just doing something to survive if I'm worried about my next paycheck if I'm you know living from paycheck to paycheck if I'm worried about eating if I'm worried about my children that kind of trumps everything else so like this is the problem of late stage capitalism is that money as this abstract meaningless thing is so intrinsically tied to survival which is not abstract at all and yeah people need and getting money can be more like a game than anything else it's a zone that you go into to do things yeah. and as much as like i have extreme and notable issues with ender's game like i think <laughs> it does provide a very good framework to sort of understand how people can sort of switch off that morality part of themselves and be mm. like but i need to do this so I can, like, protect my family, protect my community, care for them properly. Yeah. Like, and um, if you uh, – I'm going to give a brief synopsis of Ender's yeah. game. Um, he thinks he's playing a video game, but actually he's killing aliens. All right. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, spoilers. Yeah. That's, like, that's the end of it. There's, like, a whole bunch where there are very thinly veiled, veiled homophobia. Yikes. And some not unnoticeable uh, appropriation of Maori culture. Oh, wow. Okay. There's, there's a Māori character, which is really cool, but there was also, like, the use of a haka in the prologue, which he didn't um, recognise the iwi for. Yeah. Uh, Awkward. Orson Scott card. Yikes. But the end idea, the fact that, essentially, Ender was, like, tricked into fighting the aliens by thinking it was a game is, like... I think that's what we kind of do, particularly with, like, jobs that have a notable amount of moral quandaries, like Mm. the issue with Volkswagen, like a lot of pharmaceutical companies, like places where you have to make hard decisions between being a profitable company or making something that might be more closely aligned with your morality. Mm. And by setting it up as a game, you can be like, but this part of my life, my morality like doesn't count because in order for me to use my morality here, I would lose out on so many other things. Mm. Essentially, like, I'd suffer a bigger loss in how I perceive myself and how I perceive myself doing good, if that makes sense. I don't know. I I think, like, the whole capitalism idea, and more recently with globalism, these could be so great. We just, we just need to be less... And I'm, I'm saying this because I've, I've talked to so many people who jizz themselves over the idea of the free market. We just need to be less all in on this concept, on this abstract thing, and more nuanced about how 
it works practically in the real world and how we can slowly make changes and implementations to to reverse some of the really horrific shit that we've done knowingly that's my thought about capitalism anyway yeah i mean like i particularly have an issue with like consumerism more so than capitalism i think there is often a lot of pressure put on to us from external sources to buy things in order to be happy Mm. and that's like much larger than my issue with the fact that we're sort of you know forced into selling our bodies for a wage which you know i'm fine with it (laughs) i've just accepted this as a fact of life it's like i used to have to do like hours of piano practice every day i'll just be like well this is my life now that's kind of how i feel about capitalism it's like oh all right that's so much better than what i did i was supposed to do an hour of piano practice a day as well and i just didn't (laughs) yeah it was bad don't do that kids i got up to I got up to grade eight and that involves occasionally um, doing so much piano practice you then have to run your hands under cold water for a while because it's just like, oh God, oh, everything is sore. I get it sometimes when I sign now as well. Mm. It's like, I'll sign for like a whole day and then I'll be like, someone save me. (laughs) That's fantastic. Congrats. Grade eight is hard. Thank you. Thank you. Grade eight was hard, but I got it. Yeah, good on you. What's up? I did royal schools as well, which is harder than Trinity, whatever anyone says. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I was in royal school. I just had no discipline. Zero discipline. Like, <laughs> I... Did you not have discipline? Wow, this is something I definitely didn't pick up about you, Serena. <laughs> oh, speaking of consumerism, yeah. I bought one of your sister's hats for my girlfriend and she really liked it. <gasps> really? Yay. Yeah. I got the um the not dead yes. yet one. Yeah. And that's like, that's something we can definitely do with regards to capitalism and consumerism is buy stuff from people you know because you know that you're helping them with your dollars mm. like and i like still in australia i try to buy new zealand made like i get the uh the pix peanut butter oh it's so good it's what i'm about so. yes. oh and like that's that's definitely a choice you can make voting with your dollars yo buying stuff from people you know buying things that are homemade mm. buying things that like contribute to a community that yeah. you like feels better too just gives you warm fuzzies. Yeah, um, I know in Australia, there's like a network, which I can't remember the name of as well, but like it's a bunch of people, um, Aboriginal people who make things and sell them online. And like, there's a big network where you can just like find a bunch cool. of that. And I will like find the network somewhere. They share it on Indigenous X pretty regularly. Um, and I'll put that in the show notes because yeah. I think it's really great to be able to support Indigenous communities. What's, um, what's your issue with libertarianism? I say that as if I don't know. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's libertarianism assumed, like, I don't think this is an explicit assumption of libertarianism, but in order for libertarianism and that this being like a belief that people should do whatever they want, all trade should be free, the market should Mm. decide kind of thing, right? Like, for libertarianism to work, everyone has to start from the same starting place. Under the current world, people do not. And, like, that's my main issue is, like... And I think this is particularly why we see, like, a lot of white men supporting libertarianism Mm -hmm. is because they look at the world and they're like, yeah, of course we all start from the same starting place. (laughs) It's like, buddy... Life is good for everyone. My dude! (laughs) I appreciate your optimism, but fuck the fuck off! (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, like, that's my main issue. Like, I think, like, if we could wipe the slate clean, if we could just, like... I don't know, like, brainwash everyone to forget about racism. (laughs) Make sure everyone is getting the same education, is getting the same nutrition as children, because I think we often forget that that's hugely important, is getting, like, 
mm-hmm. that opportunity to start in life at exactly the same place. Then I think it's fine to let the market decide. Let libertarianism happen. Yeah. People will rise to the top and sink to the bottom as they decide. I'd also be on the side of like um, 100% inheritance tax under a libertarianism, a libertarian economy. And like I have some – generally libertarians don't agree with me on this because they're like, but it's part of your free rights to do whatever you want with your money even after you've died. And I'm like, yeah, but when you died, you don't care. Like mm-hmm. you're dead though. Like <laughs> you can't Try say. and stop me. <laughs> like you can, you can write a will and we're still going to have 100% inheritance tax because you're dead though. I think that's sort of how – libertarianism as a whole should function like i think that's Mm. the only way it makes sense when you're trying to apply it to the world we currently have is to provide sort of steps up step ups steps up to provide that initial starting equality and then you let the market decide yeah but under the current world we have there are so many like generational inequalities for some people Mm. people are trapped in a cycle of poverty cycles of violence like that fucking sucks. And that is not conducive to the market deciding the right way. That is conducive to the market deciding that people who already have money should maybe have some more money. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's precisely my frustration with libertarianism as well, is that it seems to have come from very well-meaning people who task themselves with the with the problem of what would the ideal world look like, essentially? And they said, well, if we had an ideal world, then everyone would be free with their own individual choices, et cetera, et cetera. And what they've done is they've completely removed themselves from reality. They've completely removed themselves from the context of history. And while theoretically, I think that would be a great idea, I don't think there is a quick easy or even practical way to have a good starting state for libertarianism to work and therefore it doesn't like we this is why Mm -hmm. bioshock happened (laughs) the guy in charge of bioshock whose name i have momentarily forgotten so i'm having my nerd credentials revoked as we speak (laughs) he made that under the sea libertarian paradise to create that starting environment But yeah, no, I essentially agree with you. Like, I think the amount of unconscious bias we have, the amount of, like, ways that we think about other people and the, like, fuck, I'm just, I'm so mad about generational inequality, like, particularly in the US, because, like, the American dream says that that shouldn't exist, and I just want to, if generational inequality had a face, I would punch it. The thing is that you can't, like, to create a whole quote-unquote blank slate, it's not even enough for you to take a group of people and put them in a completely different environment because they're going to bring with them subconscious biases. They're going to bring with them the learnings from their parents. And even if you just take a group of babies and you raise them with, I don't know, machines, those machines were programmed by someone, you know? Like, if you take a group of... Ah. Babies. I don't know. Take a take a group of babies, raise them by no one. Raise them by the no one. The strongest survive. The free market determines which babies get to adulthood. They all die. Is the <laughs> is the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, like leave them like open coconuts. Be like, good luck. <laughs> right, but I mean, there is also some m- more questionable research around how genetics, and you should speak to this rather than me, but how how your genetics um, affects behavior. And 
I'm going to stop talking right here because <laughs> this is this is really not my field. But you know, there is some stuff done around that. So yeah, it's... I mean, like genetics and behavior is like a notoriously shitty field where like yeah. bad science is done regularly and often. Mm, I assume so. <laughs> Yeah, I think, like, an aim to generate a libertarian paradise is, like, I think it's a noble aim to have. But I think the first thing you have to recognize is, like, the way you do that is not by, like, removing scholarships for, like, people of color or women or whatever. Mm. It's not by, like, dismantling the government from the bottom up. It's by seeing how we can change things to give people more equal starting places. So they actually have, like, a fair go in the free market. And I think that's something that, like, New Zealand, particularly in Australia, to an extent, like, holds very close to their hearts as this concept of a fair go for everyone. And I think a lot of the time, like, they fail pretty dramatically in providing that. Mm. And if we got back to that, if we got back to looking at providing the best start for everyone, so essentially, like, in the wage market, in the free market, they can decide, like, what they want to do. Like, that success is up to individuals. Like, I think that that is a more meaningful way to start aiming towards that, like, you know, libertarian paradise in an island in the Pacific (laughs) than removing, like, all trade tariffs, for example. It does seem to me that there is this gaping chasm between the theoretical ideal and the practicality of, you know, just the real world, reality. And what frustrates me the most is that it's some of the smartest people that I know the quote-unquote intellectuals that are going around talking about these theoretical ideals and putting the time and effort into abstract ideals rather than putting the time and effort into hard, practical, implementable, but not ideal reality. Mm. Mm. And it's it's tricky. Like, when I, I keep having conversations around the role of government and politics and stuff around like the US political shit show that is happening right now and it's it seems to me that it's it's definitely like the demographic of people who see themselves as reasonably smart are the demographic of people who have realized that like there has been no good completely morally just presidents or world leaders and then from that they jump to the conclusion that we should torch the entire system and start anew. And that's mm. just not practical. Like, that's yeah. just not going to get you to where you want to be. And the hard thing to tell them, and the hard thing to understand, like, for myself as well, is the fact that we need, because we need to make progress, and because progress is hard, and it's slow, and it takes time and blood and sweat, and sometimes we go backwards, we have to accept the fact that, you know, we're going to have suboptimal we're going to have unideal we're going to do some bad with our solution but it's going to be slightly better than what we had a year ago five years ago ten years ago and we're not going to get anywhere by torching the entire system because what's going to happen just look at history like look at the french revolution look at any revolution really like it it becomes a fight for power people forget why they were there in the first place it just it causes a lot more pain and suffering and death than slow but sure, painful progress. The sooner that we realize that it's the slow, painful progress that we need to put our effort in to move society forward 
for the greater good, for, you know, the betterment of all, all humans, the, the sooner we'll get there. And the fact is we won't get there soon, but we will get there with the least amount of casualties. Fingers crossed. Yeah. No, definitely. I think one of the things that frustrates me the most about making progress is when people choose not to have progress made because it is not good enough. Yeah. Um, and I learned recently that like a sort of watered-down version of Obamacare was first proposed during the when Bill Clinton was the president of the US. Yes. And no one wanted it because it wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, but, but you could have had it so much sooner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could have had it like so much sooner, my dudes. In tech, there's this thing that uh, called MVP, which is minimal viable product. Yeah. And it's the whole idea that it's better to get something kind of shitty out first, to test it, to be able to experiment with it, to see where it fails, to see where it's good, and then iterate on that. Yeah. So whenever I see that happening, I'm just like, in my head, I'm just yelling out, MVP, MVP. And I mean, like, we kind of saw that with um, carbon tax or whatever was happening in Australia, where mm-hmm. Labour put forward an idea for some system of taxing people of a lot of emissions, and the Greens disagreed with it because it wasn't enough. And it's like, why you do? Come on. Green Party, why you do? <laughs> Mate. Mate. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Things of Interest. Um, I've been Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. We've talked about a lot this episode, these two episodes, and we're going to try and have some pretty comprehensive show notes. I know I've been dropping the ball on that a bit recently, but we'll get back to it, I promise. Uh, (laughs) Remember that you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, email us at castinginterest at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is castinginterest, and we're on Facebook at Things of Interest. Please let us know what you like, what you don't like. If you think that I'm wrong about libertarianism, just (laughs) go for it. I won't read it, but you can say whatever you want. We do have an an email inbox that is open to all. Yeah. Go nuts. (laughs) Serena will read everything. I I will read everything. If you're criticizing my views on how the perfect libertarian society works, I just do not want to hear it. Fair enough. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, this two-part duo, uh, if you enjoy our podcast in general, please do tell a friend, let them know, uh, maybe recommend them your favourite episode, because we don't advertise anywhere, and we are solely word of mouth, so you know, let them know, spread the love. Uh, if you have a moment, please do give us some stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from, and leave us a review, we'd love to hear from you, anything you think. Again, inbox, always open. If you have any show, like things you want to hear about in the show, if you leave us a voice memo, we can cut that into the episode like we did with Michelle. Like, don't you want to be on local New Zealand radio? Yeah, you do. Leave us a voice memo. This has been great. Uh, We've really enjoyed doing this two-part episode. Um, And as always, stay interesting. Bye. See you next time. Oh, just as a side note, so we were driving up to Hawke's Bay last night. Yeah. And just as we were about to arrive in Hawke's Bay, I realized that I could have listened to us on the radio because <laughs> we were driving through the Manawatu. Oh, yeah. And it was Friday night. And I was just like, fuck, could have done it. <laughs> could have heard ourselves on the, on the airwaves. On the local access radio. I love it. I love it.